basis of this passage and the entirety of the scripture, we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism. We are up to Lord's Day 32. Lord's Day 32 on page 19 in the Psalter begins with question 86, which asks, Since then we are delivered from our misery merely of grace, through Christ, without any merit of ours, why must we still do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit, after his own image, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for his blessings, and that he may be praised by us. Also, that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ." Cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? By no means. For the Holy Scriptures declare that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, our catechism here brings us back to the subject of the elect believer's good works. You will recall that a little earlier in the catechism, namely in Lord's Day 24, this subject was also treated. Lord's Day 24 explained to us the proper place and function of good works in relation to our justification. You understand that justification is one of the outstanding benefits of salvation, indeed one that stands at the heart of the gospel. Justification is God's verdict as our judge in which he declares that he forgives our sins and counts us as righteous in his sight only on the basis of the finished work and perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And Lord's Day 24 explained to us that the believer's good works make no contribution whatsoever to our justification. That is, our good works do not make us acceptable to God. Our good works are not part of our righteousness before God. Our good works do not earn merit or obtain any blessing from God whatsoever. Good works are never the basis or ground for any blessing of salvation, nor are they the means or instrument by which we obtain or experience such blessings from God. Lord's Day 24, therefore, treated the subject of good works in a very narrow fashion, pointing out to us that good works are not a factor in our justification. But the catechism was not done talking about good works back in Lord's Day 24. There is more to be said. Good works have no place in function in our justification. That is, they are not the basis or the means of our justification. However, good works do have a positive place and function in the Christian life. And that is what Lord's Day 32 is going to set forth and explain to us. Good works have a proper place and function as the fruits of the saving grace worked in our hearts by the operation Good works are how we show our thankfulness to God for the full and free salvation given in Jesus Christ. You will notice that above question and answer 86 in our catechism, we have the capital letters, capitalized words, the third part of thankfulness. With Lord's Day 32, we are coming to the third and final section of the Catechism. 
The second section has explained to us how our salvation is accomplished through the work of Christ. And now the third section is going to explain to us the life that flows out of what Jesus has done for us. Really, the entire third section of the catechism is the fruit of the second section. And that's why it is very appropriate for the topic of good works to be brought up here once again. Good works are important. Believers must do good works. And that's the question that this Lord's Day is going to answer. There's an objection out there. Some would say, well, since salvation is all by grace through Christ alone, that means we don't have to do good works. And the catechism says, oh no, you must. But you must understand precisely why you must. Not to get salvation, not to become saved, but because you are saved. To use the language of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, which we will focus on, especially in connection with this Lord's Day, you are a new creature in Christ by grace. That fits with what Ephesians 2.10 says. Many of us likely know that verse by heart. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Good works are a part of the new life the believer lives by the power of the Spirit. It belongs to the very nature of salvation that we do good works in response Why does a bird fly? Because God made it to fly. Why does the sun shine? It belongs to the very nature of the sun to shine. Why does the Christian do good works? Because he is in Christ and a new creature in Christ, and that's what new creatures in Christ have been refashioned to do. And so we're going to take up that question this morning. Why do good works? That's our theme. Why do good works? And we're going to answer that question first by looking at the necessity of good works, their necessity. Then secondly, their purpose, the purpose God has for his children's good works. And then then finally, we will look at their profit. As mentioned a moment ago, the main question that Lord's Day 32 addresses is the question, why must believers do good works? The definition of good works is going to be given in the next Lord's Day, but let's review it so that we understand what we're talking about. A good work is any work that arises out of true faith that is done according to the standard of God's law and with the goal and aim of God's glory. That's what we're talking about here. Why must the believer do such works? And the simple answer that Lord's Day 32 gives is this, because of the very nature of salvation. Because God saves us in the way that he does, it will necessarily follow that his believing people do good works. Let's enter into that. The catechism here in question and answer 86 sets before us two main parts of God's saving work. There is God's work for us and there is God's work in us. We start with the first, God's saving work for us. The catechism says, Christ has redeemed us and delivered us by his blood. Redemption. Redemption is something we need because by nature we are spiritually dead and in bondage to sin, guilty and exposed to wrath. And if left to ourselves, we would sink in that pit of destruction and drown in perdition, and that would be our just desert. The sinner deserves to be punished for his sins. Redemption is the saving work of Jesus Christ in which he pays the ransom price to free us from our guilt. And he pays that ransom price to God by making atonement for our sins, satisfying divine justice. Legally, we were in sin's chains. We put ourselves there. But Jesus comes and he takes our guilt and places it upon himself, takes responsibility for our sins, and through the shedding of his precious blood, fully pays for each and every sin of every single one of God's elect people. 
And that atoning sacrifice, which is the cross of Calvary, obtained eternal redemption for all of God's elect. And now the effect, then, of that redemptive work of Christ on the cross is that we are delivered from our guilt. We are delivered from the bondage of our sin. We are delivered from the punishment that otherwise we would have suffered. We have been purchased by Christ, not with silver or gold, but with His precious blood, and we have become His peculiar possession. He has blotted out the handwriting of the law that was against us. He lifted the curse from us by being made a curse for us. And now, as 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9 says, we are reconciled to God. The enmity that was there between God and us has been removed by the sacrifice of Christ and we have been restored to God's favor and fellowship forevermore. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, gives us a glorious description of this first aspect of God's saving work in Christ. Really, the last verse of 2 Corinthians 5 is a summary of the gospel itself. For he, that is God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's the nuts and bolts of salvation by grace. Christ is ordained by God the Father as the head and mediator of the covenant. And through the incarnation, assuming to himself our flesh, he is qualified to represent us, to be our substitute. And what is ours Our sin and guilt is credited, or the biblical language, imputed to him. And what is his, his perfect righteousness, is credited, imputed to us. There's the great exchange at the heart of the gospel. Jesus became sin for us. Who knew no sin? He had no sin of himself. But what the text there means is that Jesus took responsibility for your sins and mine. He took the entire mass of the guilt of all of his elect upon his shoulders and bore it and sustained the holy wrath of God against that sin. He became the guilty one before the law of God and the curse was executed against him. His perfect sacrifice on the cross covers our sins and merited for us forgiveness and reconciliation with God. But there's more, as the last verse of this chapter says. We are made the righteousness of God in Him. What a statement! Not only did Jesus save us by dying for us, but He saves us by living for us. He knew no sin. He lived that perfectly righteous life in harmony with the law of God. His atoning sacrifice covers our sin. But as our head and as our representative, His perfect life of obedience was lived for us. And the wonder of justification is that God imputes, credits, counts that perfect life of Jesus to our account so that when God looks at his elect believing people, he sees the righteousness of Christ. So much so that this passage can say, we are the righteousness of God in him. That's the work of Christ for us. That work is the basis for all of the blessings that we receive from God, that finished work of Jesus Christ. But now, the Catechism points out that there is another dimension of Christ's saving work that is based upon that first work for us. There is also the work of Christ in us by His Holy Spirit. The Catechism goes on. Also, he renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image. Salvation does not only consist 
of redemption and deliverance from our guilt, from our bondage, from the punishment our sin deserves. But salvation is also this, an inward renewal by the Holy Spirit refashioning us in the image of Christ that is in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness by the agency of the Holy Spirit. Renewal is the Holy Spirit's work inside of us, delivering us from the power and the pollution of our indwelling sin. It is the work of the Spirit begun at regeneration when we are first given that new life of Christ and continued throughout the entirety of our earthly pilgrimage, that sanctifying work of the Spirit whereby He progressively cleanses us from the filth of sin and restores us in the image of Jesus Christ. As the New Testament tells us, we as believers are the temples of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit enters a child of God, the Holy Spirit does not leave his temple a filthy mess, but the Holy Spirit gets to work inside the child of God, cleansing and renewing. The Holy Spirit is the holy making Spirit. Now we understand from later in the Catechism that in this life we have only a small beginning of the true obedience. Even the holiest men have only a small beginning and yet that beginning is real and it is significant because it is the fruit of the Spirit's work in us. Having been redeemed, we are now being renewed. And it must be that way. Jesus is a complete Savior. He doesn't just wipe away guilt and then leave us in the pit of corruption, but He wipes away our guilt, He reconciles us to God, and then He gets to work inside of us by His Spirit to renew and transform us in His image. And that's the beautiful dimension of salvation that is described now in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, that is, connected to Christ by the sovereign work of the Spirit, as a, as a branch engrafted into the vine, elect believers are in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And that makes sense, does it not? If you are a branch engrafted into the true vine, the life and the renewing power that is there in the vine flows into you. By the power of the Spirit, you are made a new creature. You were dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. But having been redeemed by Christ and regenerated by His Spirit, you are now alive. Believer, you are not spiritually dead anymore. You are alive with the new spiritual life of Christ planted in your heart. We see there that this renewing work of the Spirit is just as much the sovereign work of God as the redeeming work performed on the cross. This renewal is described as a new creation. Just as you played no part whatsoever in your creation, so too it is not by your own power that you are renewed by the Spirit. This is the work of God. But now ponder what this verse means. Believer, right now, you are a new creature. That doesn't mean you've been perfected yet. As 1 John 3, verse 2 says, it does not yet appear now what we shall be, but on the day of Christ, we shall see him as he is and we shall be like him. We look forward to that day of full perfection. But don't take away from what 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says about you right now. Already now you are a new creature. There has been a radical change inside of you by the power of the Spirit. You have been given the life of Christ. You are not dead in sin anymore. You are not a slave to sin anymore. You are alive unto God. You are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained 
that you should walk in them. That's your identity. Your identity is in Christ. That's who you are now. And the old things, they're passed away. Yes, oh, we have that old man yet, and he's vicious. And he hangs on to the bitter end in this life. But that old man has in principle been defeated and crucified with Christ. His dominion is cast down. You no longer have to walk according to his lusts. But as a new creature in Christ, you are able by the power of the Spirit to walk in newness of life. And this is an important truth because once again, Jesus is a complete Savior And we must rejoice and praise and give God the glory for a complete salvation. Not only redemption from guilt and from punishment, but also renewal from the pollution and power of sin. Now, now we are in the position to answer the question, why do good works? Because of what salvation is. All that Christ redeems, he also renews. You cannot drive a wedge between these two dimensions of salvation. All of the elect for whom Jesus died on the cross, he also gives the Holy Spirit who works in their hearts to renew them day by day. Believers have to do good works. From a certain point of view, it is inevitable because they are the infallible fruits of our election and they are the infallible fruits of the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us and they are the infallible fruits of the renewing operation of the Spirit. Good works are necessary because of the nature of salvation itself. Listen to what Romans 6, verse 22 says. Now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Once again, you are a new creature. And a new creature whose old man is crucified no longer lives according to his old views, his old lusts, his desires, his old plans, his old patterns of thinking, his old ways of living. Those have been overthrown. Now, as we'll see next week in Lord's Day 33, the Christian life is a mighty struggle because that old man remains there and he's vying day by day for dominance. We have to wrestle with our sinful flesh through the entire course of this earthly life. But Christ has obtained the decisive victory. And by the power of the Spirit, we are able to walk in the Spirit and in newness of life. The simple biblical answer to the question, why must we do good works, is that the very nature of salvation makes it impossible that we not... Whom Christ redeems, he also renews. And those in whose hearts the Holy Spirit is at work will manifest the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and all the like. What a wonder our salvation is. Pause for a moment and think about what Christ has done for you and about the gift of the Spirit who is in you. And this question then ceases to be a naughty theological problem. It makes sense. I'm redeemed and being renewed. Of course I will do good works. And not just from an objective point of view, but from a subjective point of view. I want to. I want to. Because of what he's done for me, I want to. And that leads us to the second point. Their purpose. 
Having established the necessity of good works in the life of the believer, the catechism proceeds to point out a twofold purpose of good works, God's purpose for the good works of his people, and this should be our purpose as well, and a motive to strive to do good works and to live a new life in harmony with the law of God. So, a twofold purpose. We read on in the Catechism in answer 86. And here is the first of these two purposes. The end of the second line that so, there you have a purpose clause. Here's the purpose that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for his blessings. There's the purpose. That's why the believer ought to do good works. This is how we thank God. This is how we express that thankfulness to Him for the complete salvation freely given in Jesus Christ. Good works are expressions of thankfulness. What's it mean to be thankful? We all understand this, I dare say, intuitively. But if you had to put it into words, what does it mean to be thankful to God? One way to describe it is this. Thankfulness is the believer's heartfelt and joyful expression of his love towards God for salvation. In which the believer then adores God and magnifies his goodness. When you're thankful to God, your heart rejoices in who God is and what he has done for you, and that rejoicing can't stay hidden in your heart. It has to come out. It has to manifest itself. It has to express itself. And that thankfulness is manifest in many ways. It's manifest in corporate worship. The worship of the church is a Corporate expression of thanksgiving to God. The songs of praise that we bring are sacrifices of thanks. But you understand, thanksgiving is not only shown in word, but it's also shown in deed. That makes sense. When you're thankful to a loved one or a fellow member in the congregation, you say thanks, but sometimes you also render them a service to express your gratitude. Thanksgiving is expressed in word and in deed. With our words and with our deeds, we adore God and magnify His goodness to us. True gratitude, simply, to use the words of 1 Peter 2.9, to show forth the praises of Him who hath called us out of darkness into His marvelous light and into the saving fellowship of His Son. Now, The Catechism teaches us something very important about the expression of our thankfulness. We've we've spoken in general about in word and in deed, but the Catechism goes farther, doesn't it? That we may testify by our whole conduct, that is, by the entirety of your life, that is, in every area of your life. You see, thankfulness is not just sending a few thankful words to heaven and devoting a certain sector or department of your life to the service of God while keeping this part over here for me and the service of my old man and whatever lusts I have. No, gratitude is testifying of your thankfulness to God with your whole life. The words of a familiar Psalter number, all that I am, I owe to thee. And the thankful believer says, all that I am, I readily give to thee as a sacrifice of thanksgiving for Jesus Christ who gave his all for me, an unworthy sinner. Testify by the whole of our conduct. Go back to Jesus' summary of the law and you see that. Loving God with 
all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your outer life, your inner life. Your heart, your mind, your thinking, your desires, your feeling, your outward actions. Everything. Everything. Jesus purchased you with his precious blood. He didn't purchase part of you. He purchased all of you. All that you are belongs to him. And all that you are is to be rendered as a sacrifice of thanks to him. You're a new creature in Christ. And the way that new creatures thank their Savior is by being who they are meant to be in Jesus Christ. Be who you are meant to be. A new creature who lives a new life. Who fights against his or her sin. Who turns away from it in true repentance. Who is not content to have little sectors of my life that I devote to a certain sin. But I strive to root it all out and devote all that I am to God. That's thankfulness. For all of God's blessings, the catechism says. And there you ponder that. How many reasons we have to be thankful. How many blessings of God. As we sang in the previous Psalter number, you can't count them. You can't reckon them all up. You can't compute the multitude of God's blessings to you. And thus, for every believer, we have an infinite storehouse of reasons to be thankful. Our gratitude should be unending. And thus, our whole life. Here's the meaning of life, beloved. Here's our purpose in this world to honor God with thanksgiving for what he has done for us. Do you feel that? Do you feel that in your heart? If you do not, not to examine yourself. Is it a sin that you're holding on to that's your idol, that you're devoted to more than you are to the living God? Feel it in your heart as you ponder what God has done for you in Christ. When we ponder it, when the reality of all that salvation is sinks in, the spontaneous response of the child of God is I want to thank my God. I don't want to continue in sin. I delight to live a life of good works. Yes, it's hard because it goes against the grain of my sinful nature, but I strive in dependence upon the Spirit to obey those Ten Commandments, to love my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love my neighbor as, I, as myself. I want to. It's not out of a mere sense of obligation because I have to. Yes, that's true. We have to. But that's not the Christian's main motive. The Christian's main motive is I want to because I'm thankful for what God has done for me. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verses 47 and 48, I will delight myself in thy commandments which I have loved. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments which I have loved, and I will meditate on thy statutes. That's thankfulness put into words. And so that's the first purpose. God calls us to do good works and God has saved us in Jesus Christ unto good works that we might thereby express our heartfelt thanksgiving to Him. Which honors Him. Which praises Him. Which glorifies Him. And and that's the second purpose which is intimately connected with the first. So much so that you could almost treat these as one. The catechism goes on after the part that we just considered, and that he may be praised 
by us. When the believer in joy for what God has done in Christ, when that believer thanks God with his words and with his deeds, that praises and that honors God. It glorifies him. And that's really the ultimate purpose of our new life in Christ. That's the ultimate purpose for the good works that God gives us to perform. That he may be praised. You know the five solas or the five onlys of the Reformation and the last one in the Latin, soli deo gloria, that is, to God alone be the glory, and that is the anthem of the Christian life. And there's the purpose of good works, to God be the glory. He has saved me in Christ, redeemed me with His precious blood. He is renewing me by the powerful operation of the Holy Spirit. And now I want to bring forth fruit unto the glory of His name. You see, good works are an act of worship. All of God's works are designed to praise Him. The whole world, the works of God's hand, is designed to praise Him, to bring glory to Him in its own way. The trees glorify God by doing what He designed trees to do. The birds glorify God by flying and singing as God designed them to do. The sun glorifies God as it shines its radiant light as God designed it to do. And Christians glorify God by being the new creatures in Christ that He has made them. And by living out of that new life of Christ, purposefully, intentionally, consciously, for His glory. Think of Jesus' words in John 15, verse 8, where He says, Herein is My Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. That glorifies God. Now that also means negatively, If we bear no fruit, if we bear little fruit, because we do not care about fruit bearing, but are more concerned with living our life the way we want to, we are dishonoring God. That's the grave warning in the second question and answer of the catechism. Those who continue impenitently in sin and bear no fruit make manifest that they are dead yet. Salvation in Christ, redemption, renewal, must lead to good works as the necessary fruits of salvation. Every branch grafted into the true vine will be fruitful. Now, beloved, as branches grafted into that true vine, that's our delight. That's our purpose in life. What a great purpose. Far better than all of the so-called purposes for life that are bandied about in our society. Getting rich. Having lots of good experiences. Enjoying great trips. Enjoying all of the things that the world has to offer. And it's vanity. None of it lasts. None of it delivers from sin. None of it will avail you anything when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The meaning and purpose of life is to glorify the God of your salvation. That's why we have the privilege of doing good works. Those are acts of worship that honor our Savior. To God be the glory. Well, finally, in our consideration of this Lord's Day, we come to their prophet, that is, the prophet of good works. Because good works are the fruits of the Spirit, they are useful and they are profitable in the lives of believers. The Spirit doesn't bring forth sour, useless fruit. The Spirit brings forth healthy, sweet fruit. Good works are profitable. Indeed, for Titus 3 verse 8 says this, 
This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Now, in light of everything that we've looked at in the sermon thus far, we understand what that means when we say good works are profitable. They are not profitable unto salvation. They have no place in function in getting us saved. The profit of good works is this, that they are fruits of being saved. Sweet, beautiful fruits that honor God and are delightful and sweet to God's people. Now, much could be said here, but the Catechism highlights especially two ways that the Spirit-wrought good works in the life of a believer are profitable. And so we're going to limit our focus just to those two things that the Catechism brings out. In the middle of answer 86, after the part about God being praised by us, we have the word also, and that's indicating another transition in the thought of the Lord's Day. We're moving from the purpose of good works to their profit, their usefulness. And here's the first of the two. Also, that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. Now, let's take a moment to understand very clearly what that means because there's been controversy over that phrase and it's worth our while being very clear about it. To be clear, we start off by identifying what that phrase does not mean. It does not mean this, that the believer, in in order to be assured that he is saved, looks at his good works and finds assurance on the basis of those good works. That's not what the catechism is teaching here. Good works are not something to be leaned on in order to be assured that you're saved. Assurance of salvation is simply the certainty that I belong to Jesus Christ and none can pluck me out of his hand. And that assurance is based entirely and exclusively upon not my good works, but Jesus' good works, his death on the cross and his life of perfect obedience. The believer's assurance is firmly grounded on nothing else but the solid rock of Jesus' finished work. To be assured of my salvation, I don't look at what I've done, but I look at what Christ has done for me. Besides, faith... is assurance. To put it in a more clear way, assurance belongs to the essence of faith. Let your mind go back to Lord's Day 7, which defined faith for us. Faith is a certain knowledge and an assured confidence. And then the Catechism expands on that assured confidence that not only to others, but to me also remission of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. You see, assurance belongs to the essence of faith. This is, this is how we are assured. By faith, looking at Christ and what he has done. Faith is the one means by which we rest assured of our salvation. Christ alone is the basis, and by faith we look upon him. So, the catechism here is not talking about how you get assured of your salvation. Rather, the focus of the catechism is much more narrow. What the catechism is teaching here is that our good works give evidence that our faith is living and genuine. Good works are evidence that our faith is lively. And that makes sense. The liveliness of faith is manifest by the fruits that are born from it. The presence of good works demonstrates the fact of our spirit-given faith. That it is a genuine faith, a real faith, not a dead faith. Where the Holy Spirit dwells, there faith will be. And where there is faith, 
there will be the fruits of faith. Scripture teaches this. Think of Matthew 7, verse 20, where Jesus says, Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Jesus is saying there, this is how you identify a believer. Lots of people might go around saying, I'm a believer, but faith shows itself by its fruits. Where you see a person loving the Lord and loving their neighbor, there you say, that's a believer. Because that kind of love only flows from true faith. There's the evidence of the liveliness of that person's faith. Or you think of James 2, verses 17 through 18. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. James there isn't teaching that we're justified by works. Of course not. He's explaining that the works which flow out of faith give evidence of the liveliness, the genuineness of that God-given faith. That's the Reformed and proper way to understand this part of the Catechism. And to give further demonstration that it is the proper Reformed way, allow me to quote from Herman Huxema's commentary on this very Lord's Day. In the third volume of Triple Knowledge on page 48, he says, It is certainly scriptural, therefore, to teach that faith can be known by the fruits thereof. And then he goes on to expand on that a little more further on page 50, where he says, But although faith is assured in itself, and although it is in itself a hearty confidence that I belong to Christ and that I am a partaker of all his benefits of righteousness and eternal life, I can nevertheless be assured from the fruits of good works of the fact of my faith, or rather the blessed fact that I am in the faith. This is also exactly what the Heidelberg Catechism teaches in the 86th answer of Lord's Day 32. So to wrap up this, the the first prophet of good works is that they are evidence confirming the fact of my faith. Where those fruits of the Spirit are, there must be faith and there must be the inner working of the Spirit. And thus when we look around the congregation, we're not always asking the question, Is my brother or sister in the pew beside me a true believer? When I see those fruits, I make the charitable judgment. They are. Of course, ultimate judgment belongs to God. He's the only one that knows the heart. And yet, nonetheless, we charitably judge one another. We see faith manifest by its fruits. Now, of course, sometimes in the life of a believer, think of David and his sin with Bathsheba, those fruits became very sparse and bruised for a time. Nonetheless, by the work of the Spirit, he was brought to repentance, and those fruits were manifest once again. Secondly and finally, the Catechism mentions this prophet of good works in the life of the believer, the last part of question and answer 86, and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Good works are an aid to evangelism. Think of Matthew 5, verse 16, where Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It's a beautiful thing. God uses the gospel to call his lost elect sheep out of darkness into his marvelous light. But God is also pleased as a subordinate means to use the witness of his people in the life that they live to help draw others to Christ. God doesn't use human persuasion. That doesn't convert. But God at times is pleased to use the, uh, the acts of kindness 
the demonstration of love and care on the part of his people to prick a heart, to kindle a spark, to draw another person, to come hear the gospel out of interest. That person who's a Christian showed me such kindness, even though I didn't do anything for them. Why is that? These Christians, they're, they're different. They live differently. I want to learn more. You see, as God's people, we represent our God. Our conduct is always sending a message to the world and to the people around us. Our conduct sends a message about what our God is like. And oh, that ought to press itself upon our hearts and make us think about the way we live and the way we treat others. How do we represent our God? What message do we send to the neighbors next door or the co-workers at work? What kind of message do we send about the Christian faith to the unbeliever we cross paths with? Are we living epistles? That is, do we embody the gospel of salvation by grace alone so that when others look at us, they see a glimpse of who Jesus is? That's the way it ought to be. Our lives, when they embody the gospel, shine as a light. And God may be pleased to use that light to draw lost sheep to the church, to the preaching of the gospel, and into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. How we live is hugely important and has a huge impact on our witness. And here it comes back to the glory of God. We glorify God when we shine as a light. We dishonor God. Not only if we hide our light under a bushel, but when we live in such a way that we look like the world. There's a reason for us, dependence upon grace to do good works, that we may, according to God's will, be used to gain others to Christ. So what a privilege it is, Christian brothers and sisters, to do good works. What an exciting thing. Let this not be an abstract theological concept for us, but let this live in our hearts. I want to thank my God and bring Him glory by living a new life. Because He gave everything for me in Jesus Christ. And eternity will not be long enough to render unto Him my grateful returns of ardent love to the God who first loved me. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this word of the Scriptures so clearly summarized in our catechism. Press it upon our hearts. Grant that it may stir us up unto thankful service in godly living to the praise of thy glorious grace. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.